Hi Chris, this is Umberine and this is my audio sample. I will be reading from Richard Knoll's General History of the Turks, dated 1603. And this is from his letter to the Christian reader. There stepped up among the Turks in Bithynia one Usman, or Othman, of the Oosian tribe, or family, a man of great spirit and valor, who, by little and little, growing up amongst the rest of his countrymen and the other effeminate Christians on that side of Asia, at last, like another Romulus, took upon him the name of Sultan or King, and is right worthily accounted the first father of the mighty empire of the Turks, which continued, by many descents, directly in the line of himself, even unto Mahomet the third of that name, who now reigneth, and is from a small beginning become the greatest terror of the world, and holding in subjection many great and mighty kingdoms in Asia, Europe, and Africa, is grown to that height of pride as that it threateneth destruction unto the rest of the kingdoms of the earth, laboring with nothing more than the weight of itself. Thank you, and I hope this was good audio. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. In this episode, Miriam Patton and I welcome an esteemed guest from the field of Shakespeare studies. My name is Umberine Dadaboy. I am an assistant professor of literature at Harvey Mudd College. And uh, my research and teaching are in Shakespeare and the early modern period. And I focus on representations of race and religion particularly in plays that are set in the Mediterranean region. I'm really thinking about the Eastern Mediterranean and those moments of encounter with Islamic regimes, African regimes, and how those encounters are shaping early modern notions of what race is and also how Islam is coming to be constructed as a racialized religion, even as the English are looking at the Ottomans as an example of what a successful empire can be. In our conversation with Professor Dadaboy, we'll discuss the ubiquitous portrayals of Muslims in the works of the Bard himself, as well as his contemporaries, to understand what they reveal about questions of race and views of the other in Europe before the modern period, along with their relevance for thinking through these issues today. Join us. Let's start by talking about the thing that sort of brings together your teaching and your research, which is this hashtag that you very devoutly use in all of your posts related to this subject, the shake race hashtag. Um, Can you explain what this hashtag refers to? Is this a movement? Is this a, why do you use this hashtag? And what does it say about what's happening in Shakespeare studies and early modern literature with regard to the question of race? Thank you for giving me the opportunity to plug hashtag shake race. Um, I did not invent this hashtag, even though I use it quite a bit. It was invented by Kim, um, or it was started by Kim F. Hall, who is a professor at Barnard. And she started this hashtag in 2015 for a seminar that she was running for the Shakespeare Association 
uh, that was on race and she wanted to think about the shake part is of course talking about Shakespeare and and thinking about how Shakespeare and race studies work together or race studies in Shakespeare but it's also about shaking up race studies so thinking about for, for most people who work on race they think about race as being really something that is an 18th century and later kind of phenomenon. And she is really encouraging us, has been encouraging us for several years through her work to think in earlier periods. So there's like two things going on with Shake Race, but it's definitely a way for kind of like an activist movement online to for people to share their work um, so it's very collaborative, and it's also just uh, a way to kind of flag moments in the early modern period that can be about Shakespeare, but also can't, it, you don't have to have a Shakespeare connection, but that are about sort of pre-modern and race. And I can imagine this could either be a very revolutionary center of the field sort of mainstream movement, or it could be the exact opposite, that this would be seen as a a great departure from one of the more studied uh, subjects uh, in the field of uh, English literature, certainly. How is Shake Race hashtag and the the work around it shaking up the field of Shakespeare studies? I think um, one of the things that Shake Race has been very successful in in doing, and I I have to plug Kim's book, uh, Things of Darkness, because it came out in the mid 90s and it really gave us uh, a pathway to think about the importance of race and just noticing color-coded discourse as also being racialized discourse, particularly because of European expansion into Africa, in further east, and all these areas where blackness becomes a way for them to understand themselves. And so um, her, her book came out in the 90s, and I mean, it has been cited over and over again, but it hasn't been positioned Um, as kind of foundational in the field the way other work has. And so really, Shake Race, it's not just about um, sort of uplifting Kim's work, which it should be, but it's about kind of telling us that we have all of these texts that have been around and doing the work, um, but they have been ignored and marginalized in a field that is very much invested in not seeing race race has been all around us and people have been talking about it for a really long time. Um, and, and now that we have Twitter, we don't have to kind of be silent about <laughs> the things that, that we know and the things that we want to say. You know, why, why Shakespeare? Can we, is he still like, why is he still such like the central pivoting figure around which literary theory and, and sort of post-colonial literary analysis still like is going back to Shakespeare? The easy answer for why Shakespeare is just the cultural capital. Like we don't have to do any work to make the case for Shakespeare. Like Shakespeare already makes the case for himself. And so um, attaching this kind of revolutionary work to um, a giant like Shakespeare just helps you to um, get a wider audience for the work that you're doing. 
Um, you know, if I was talking about some minor playwright who didn't have many plays printed, but they were circulated in manuscript form, but it was amazing, but nobody would know this text. And so it was just, it wouldn't have the wide circulation. So really, I, for me, the idea is you use Shakespeare as, as my root and my anchor for me to then be able to do the work because people have already accepted um, that Shakespeare is worthwhile in some way. And I suppose for the topic of our interview today, another convenient aspect uh, to Shakespeare's life is that his life happens to overlap with this moment in Ottoman history, a moment of great expansion and growth, dubbed sort of the golden golden age or the classical period, you know, Suleiman's nickname being the Magnificent, you know, gives us an air of sort of grandeur and and also, you know, danger towards Europeans. So could you talk a bit about the ways that the Ottomans, the Turks, you know, what's the difference between those two labels, the ways they're depicted in not just Shakespeare, but more generally in theater and, and popular cultural literature um, in this period, and just some of the ways in which their religion, their race starts to inform those percep- those perceptions or those perspectives of the Turks? In Early modern English drama, we have this kind of stock figure of the stage Turk that shows up in um, in, in lots of plays. I'm thinking about um, Tamburlaine, and we have um, Bayezet is there, and like he becomes the the footstool for for Tamburlaine. And there's uh, Solomon and Persida by Kidd, um, which is about Suleiman's conquest of Rhodes, but of course there's the intervention in that play where um, Suleiman is killed uh, while trying to conquer Rhodes, and so there's a kind of triumph, imagined triumph there with the the literal real loss of Rhodes. Um, The Fair Maid of the West is set in North Africa, um, and you have Muslim characters and Black characters, and so you have the figure of the Moor as Muslim, but also aligned with the Turk through costuming like turbans and scimitars and, and just even phrasing, right? They're, they're always like, I swear by the scimitar or I swear by Mahomet and I swear by whatever. So th- those are all ways that um, the drama kind of turns the Turk into this stock figure. And it's doing a lot of work, I think, in terms of presenting the, the power of the Ottomans, but also for its London audience, really domesticating the other, right? So in Suleiman and Persida, um, Suleiman is really brought down by his desire for this woman Persida, but also his kind of finicky collecting of male favorites, right? And so, so that he's not politically savvy in this way. And so it kind of gives, I think, the, the audience... Um, It it constructs for them an an idea of the Turk as very capricious, childlike, easily um, ruled by their emotions. And so therefore, we can feel some kind of superiority over them because we wouldn't behave in this way. I'm also thinking of this really interesting moment that happens in Henry IV Part II when the old king has died and Hal... Uh, who will become Henry V, he ascends the throne. And when he ascends the throne, um, his brothers are there and he's like, don't, and I'm going to paraphrase really badly, but he says, um, don't, uh, don't be afraid that I'm ascending the throne because this is not 
the way that uh, we are not in Turkey. And so it's not as though uh, uh, Amurat is succeeding in Amurat, but this is, you know, Henry succeeding Henry. And the comparison kind of fails because you do have this repetition of naming, right? So it is actually in this way an Amurat succeeding in Amurat, but what he's promising them is I'm not going to kill you all the way the Turks would kill you all. But he's, um, but there's always that sinister suggestion that's embedded in there. So, so my point here is that the Ottomans are sort of this constant metaphor that is available to them um, that I think reflects a a kind of existential anxiety about the power of the Ottoman Empire to encroach into Europe and actually to take over culturally, politically, imperially spaces that Europeans, uh, like their own nations, like, like there is an actual fear that that could happen. In the examples that you studied um, in your research, do these depictions of, you know, various moments in history of the Ottomans and the Turks are they intended to be historical representations? You know, barring the fact that the details are, are changed here and there, or, you know, maybe this woman isn't actually, wasn't, you know, didn't exist, and it's just a metaphor, a trope. Um, are, are these plays trying to present this as, you know, a historical kind of play in the same way that Shakespeare wrote histories versus tragedies and comedies? Um, you know, they're, they're not explicitly fictional. Um, I think some some of them are. So if I think about, like, Tamburlaine, I feel like that is something where we are getting... Um, the equivalent of a Shakespearean history play there. And that would be uh, Marlowe, right? So so not necessarily Shakespeare. Um, but I think that there is the this powerful blurring between history and fiction to serve narrative, right? So even when I'm thinking about Shakespeare's history plays, right, they're all based on real things that happen in English history, but he's constantly changing things around, removing characters, um, changing the order of events to serve the the message of his play rather than to be very accurate historically. So I think that the drama is more looking at the Turk um, to to fulfill a certain kind of affective um, function rather than kind of chronicle history. But alongside the drama, then we have all of all of these books about the Ottoman Empire in Turkey, all of these print books that are Englished so that if you don't speak Italian, for example, or German, um, then you can you can still access them and you can get these historical narratives. But those are also like high fantasy sometimes. Yeah, I was just struck by the example you gave of Amurath succeeding Amurath. And, you know, the audience would have had to really understand what they were getting at, like the backstory of like fratricide and the role of fratricide in the Ottoman court, you know, without that backstory, that back, sort of background knowledge, would that line have made any sense? Probably not. We seem to be, you know, speaking about an audience or a, a sense of popular culture that was informed about Ottoman history. And so these these plays could sort of you know, move beyond just establishing the, the basic facts and story and move on to sort of metaphors and drawing out bigger narratives and sort of lessons and tropes about, you know, where does Europe stand in relation to the Ottomans? No, but I think you're absolutely right, especially with the, the fratricide thing. I think that that really was something that 
I would argue helps to kind of racialize the Ottomans in terms of um, showing how barbaric they are in how they choose their rulers. So they don't have this kind of order that, that we do when we have our rulers, except kind of forgetting about all the English Civil War, the Wars of the Roses, all of these things that came right before Henry um, the Seventh, and then Henry the Eighth, and then now we're in Elizabeth's reign. And so we have somewhat of a stable government and the crown passing along a family line. Um, but the Ottomans are like the crown has been passed through the family line, but then they have this other custom that kind of renders them so radically other, like beyond the kinds of um, social familial bonds that that the English and I guess other Europeans um, kind of hold on to as a sign of their civilization and kind of Ottoman fratricide as a sign of Ottoman savagery. If you had to point to one Shakespeare play that like most people know for understanding race the subject of race could be coded by religion can be coded by color however however you want to think of it what would that be and why I mean I guess I would just have to go to uh, Othello um, and this I, I could choose any play of course but I think that most people when we think about race we don't think about whiteness. And so we think about non-white bodies as the bodies that have race. And Othello is the play that has the lead, a lead character who is black, right? That is one of two plays where a lead is black. The other one would be Antony and Cleopatra, which can be, dis Cleopat people dispute Cleopatra's um, ethnicity, but in Shakespeare's play, it's very clear that Shakespeare intends for her to be black. So, um, so Othello would be my go-to. Also, because like Othello's blackness has been contested by critics, especially since the 19th century, where there was a move to really orientalize and Arabize Othello on stage. I think in response to um, transatlantic slavery and plantation slavery. And so Othello is made palatable by turning by turning him into an Arab rather than having him um, be black. And then again, the word more is doing so much work there to allow that um, ethnic change. And so that's an example of actually the meaning of race changing over the course from the time when Shakespeare originally wrote the play to the 19th century, that it's no longer acceptable to have this really leading figure be black. I, I think on the stage, on the English stage, that is correct. Um, there are, you know, folks like Coleridge and Hazlitt, English um, literary critics and cultural critics, I guess we would call them, writing about how offensive it would be to see the embraces between a black man and a, a pure white Venetian woman. And therefore, either Shakespeare intended for us to only read this play and not perform it, as Hazlitt says, or as Coleridge says, um, he had to have had in his mind an Arab and, and not a black man. I was reading a thread online that 
I suspect you were part of, but you know how Twitter is. <laughs> it's there one moment and gone the next. There was a thread going around about the Arabic translation of Othello, some of the first Arabic translations, and that um, there too, that his race was obscured, that there's nothing about him being black. The, the conversation I saw was more about dynamics of race in the uh, 19th and 20th century Middle East, but this could also be an artifact of the English transformation of the figure of Othello. Can you, can you speak more about that at all? Yeah, I mean, I kind of missed that thread. Sadly, I'm always I'm I'm always up for some kind of Othello thread where there could be some controversy. I mean, I think that Othello is because he's the only character who is a Moor. There's a way that for those of us who belong to Islamic cultures, um, we can say, "Oh, look, Shakespeare wrote about us." And so that, uh, and again, this is about Shakespeare and his cultural capital, and also about empire, also about like, why do we care all over the globe that Shakespeare wrote about us? Well, we care because if we're part of the British Empire at any point, then then he was raised for us as the, the best writer and thinker ever. Um, so I think that finding yourself in Shakespeare in whatever capacity is important. And so Othello's being a Moor is a way that um, Arab cultures can access Shakespeare and think about how then Shakespeare is speaking for them. Um, I would never want Othello to be speaking for me because, you know, he is the creation of a white man, Shakespeare, and it's very the the play is very problematic. So it it, it certainly wouldn't be uh, my go-to play for like here is a representation of my culture. No, but I think in terms of what you're talking about, even in in Arab societies, we have not just colorism, but we also have racism and we also have anti-blackness. And so it's not surprising to me that in the transformation of Othello within those cultures, you would have a kind of erasure of blackness. One of my favorite adaptations of this play is a book called Season of Migration to the North. Um, and that is written in Arabic by Tayyib Saleh, um, who is Sudanese. And so there his Othello is Arab um, and he's also black. Um, his character Mustafa Said, who is this kind of Othello proxy. So I think it's a very interesting question, especially how cultures about whom Shakespeare seems to be writing deal with the, the problematic ways Shakespeare seems to write about us. Could we speak a little bit more about this sort of overlap between race and religion in not just Othello, but more generally? I know there's some debate over whether more necessarily automatically means Muslim. Why does it matter either way? Like, you know, what, what kind of differences do we see in the character of Othello and Shakespeare if we don't take him for a Muslim versus if we do? And similarly, you know, Arab versus Black. Yeah, that's a fantastic question, right? Race is, it's not an essential thing, as we know, and it is something that is being formed. And it, it's a way to locate difference in these kinds of essentializing ways. So the discourse will always be incoherent. Um, but what we see happening in the in the period is that through these kinds of encounters that are happening, increased increased trade, um, 
the the kidnapping of Africans uh, into bondage and slavery that the Portuguese started in the kind of mid 16th century. The English are very late to to this project. Um, all of these encounters are facilitating the need to kind of figure out how we are different from these people and to rationalize um, hierarchical relations that are going to happen. And so um, the, the more and Muslim connection very much comes to England via Spain, right? And thinking about, right, even the modifier, like the Arab Moors who conquered Spain, what does that even mean? Um, that certainly is an ethnic designation, but who else was in those armies and, um, and that society? We know there were many black people who we might call sub-Saharan African people who were in those armies who were settled in Spain. And so, so that, um, Moorish Spain was a religious designation that was also multi-ethnic and multiracial. So all of that confusion though gets flattened out or complicated, however, however we wanna look at it, through this term Moor um, that comes to signal for the English both racial difference and religious difference. But then they, when they encounter people in Indonesia, they call them Moors. When they encounter people in India, they call them Moors. When they encounter people in North America, they call them Moors. And then we can think about the Indian and Indonesian example as being Tawny Moors or white Moors. They, they have all these signifiers that come in. So you have black Moor, you have white Moor, you have Tawny Moor. So that you have an awareness of colorism, um, which is leading us into kind of a uh, locating race in skin. All of these things are happening. Um, but you also have religion, right? In Indonesia, for example, they were probably Muslims. And in India, they, they were probably Muslims too. And so that so that it is not just the color of their skin, but also their religious practice that is getting folded into this term. But, and this the, the function of this term is to signal difference. Um, and so it, race and religion are, I think, working together all the time and religion is becoming racialized in order to exert this kind of power. And I would say that Turks on the stage are almost always, like I cannot even think of one instance um, where a Turk on a stage is not a Muslim. So Turk definitely for them means Muslim. And, and Turk gets labeled onto lots of non-Turks just to signal, right, like their infidelity, their betrayal, but also um, linking that to Islam. So another thing I want to ask is you mentioned at the beginning that Shakespeare's time wasn't the time that people focused on in studying the history of race in Europe for a very long time. It was treated as a later development and that we cannot think of the categories that existed, even the category of race itself, uh, during the early modern period as being consummate with later modern uh, forms. Um, and of course, there's a strong pushback and that shake race has, hashtag is part of it. So how does pushing back that uh, conversation into that early modern period, into the period before the rise of the transatlantic slave trade, for example, uh, change how we think about the history of race? It's a big question. Uh, let me see if I can answer it. Um, let me start with 
Shakespeare. Um, I think that there has been a resistance to thinking about this in our field because there's a way that we want Shakespeare and this time period to be innocent from the kinds of degradations that we know happened because of the transatlantic slave trade. And how can we have this amazing author of the human condition, right, as Bardolatry tells us, um, live in a time that was implicated in these things? So it's been a lot of, I think, retroactive cleansing or whitewashing of the past that we've received, I think, through the Victorians. Um, they've done a, a, a good service for white supremacy, but a bad service for historical accuracy. I think for the study of race, it's really important to look to the pre-modern because you can see already um, some of the, the ways in which the meanings of race are already being mobilized. And so we can go earlier than the, the early modern period. We can go into the Middle Ages and think about so many medieval romances are about these moments of encounters between Christians and Saracens and um, Moors and Moorish knights who marry fair women and then convert to Christianity and then are, their skin is lightened, right? These are all racial discourses that are giving us mean like they're telling us that the the lightening of your skin that's related to christianity is going to save you and it makes you better and so then your dark skin then is associated with non-christian associated with deviancy and sin so i think taking the long view of race is important because it kind of shows us how we get to the place where people can be enslaved in the numbers that they were and how how the people who were doing the enslaving can be okay with um, dehumanizing other people in that way right it's already something that is floating around in your culture so in other words the slave trade did not create race, the modern slave trade did not create racism, but rather racism was a precondition of that particular form of exploitation existing in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would agree. One of the interesting things that's been happening is that sort of parallel to what you all are doing in this scholarly field is that new adaptations of Shakespeare and these old dramas are being created and they're inserting uh, a diverse cast of characters, maybe even beyond what existed in those plays, right? Just you can change the race of a character in a Shakespeare play with in your performance or in a film. It's possible to do it. It's a it's a drama. It's something that's very much part of how these kind of texts are being reclaimed. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. If that's something that you can read in parallel with this new uh, study of of the past of of those Shakespeare's texts in that era, if there's a tension there, if you think that you know these new adaptations 
are somehow influenced by something that's happening in Shakespeare studies? Like, I'm, I'm just curious on sort of about what's, what impressions you have of this trend. I'm like a super fan of um, casting that is color conscious. So like, right, the difference between colorblind casting and color conscious casting is that in colorblind casting, we would just put people of color in various roles, but they would we're not necessarily paying attention to the racial realities of the actor. And so the actor is then simply ventriloquizing a kind of white Shakespeare performance, whereas color conscious casting is paying attention to the racial identity of the actors and bringing that into the character so that you're you're not pretending to be to do Shakespeare right by doing it white, but you're actually doing um, you're performing yourself. You're bringing your whole self into the performance. I'm thinking, for example, of the public's um, it must be two years ago now, so that would be like 2018, I think. Um, and I know we're in 2021, but <laughs> I'm still in 2020. But I think it was their 2018 performance of Much Ado About Nothing, and it was an all-black cast. And that was, I think, such a fantastic choice because you are. Th- there's a line in the play where Claudio and I can't remember if they cut it or not, where Claudio spurns Hero. He spurns her because he thinks she's been unfaithful. And her father says, you've fallen into a pit of ink, right? So you've metaphorically been blackened in this way. And then when when we find out that she wasn't unfaithful, Claudio thinks she's dead, but he's going to marry her cousin. And he says, I would marry her even if she was an Ethiop, right? So even if she was black, I would marry her because I want to make this restitution. And a lot of times we gloss over these moments um, when we see them because we're like, oh, they were old fashioned. So maybe Shakespeare wasn't racist. But what it actually shows us is that how women's desirability is coded through and against blackness. And so that, that it's not just an it is an accessible metaphor, but it's commonplaceness kind of shows us how these ideas are circulating. Um, so in, in that all black production, you've kind of neutralized that a little bit, but you also, that, that production also plays up song, dance, movement that is all, uh, all specific to a culture. And so you really get a view into how Shakespeare can be made so much more interesting if we gave creative control um, to people who have other ways of being and engaging with Shakespeare. In Ottoman studies, where race is still you know, catching up, I think the, the role of race in Ottoman studies has a lot further to go. Their, the role of the, the chief black eunuch and sort of guarding the harem of women. I couldn't help but think of that aspect of Ottoman history and was wondering if it ever gets mentioned in, in English dramas. So there's this play, I haven't seen it yet. Um, hopefully it's, it's filmed called um, Othello in the Seraglio, which is about Sumbul, the um, black eunuch. I'm not sure if he's like the chief black eunuch of the of the harem, but um, I think that there is a certainly a lot of artistic interest around these figures. And I know um, Hamid Arvash, who's at um, UPenn, works a lot on Ottoman studies and, and Shakespeare um, 
and gender and sexuality. And so he has a fantastic article that is on the figure of the eunuch and, and through like a queer studies kind of lens. But I mean, the English dramas were obsessed with eunuchs, dwarves, all of these things that they saw as kind of oddities of the empire, which I think did serve a kind of racializing purpose. And I'm, I'm not sure that they were aware of the intricacies of um, the, the fact that the, the black eunuchs guarded the women's portion of the harem and then the white eunuchs obviously had other administrative duties and could rise quite high which i i think for me really does point out to uh point to a kind of uh, anti-blackness within ottoman society and culture there's this pamphlet i'm gonna blank on the name by but it's by um ottaviano bon and it's translated into english some sometime in the mid 17th century and he has a description of the order of the eunuchs and where they're assigned and he talks about the the black eunuchs guarding the sultan's wives and he talks about black enslaved women who are as according to him picked to serve the women but they're picked according to how ugly they are so the ugliest woman would be picked for this kind of service so it's very kind of weird moment not just of, of kind of noticing race but also associating beauty or lack of beauty with race and like i only work in in english texts and and i don't have the ottoman language to be able to work in the ottoman archives but i would be very interested in some like cross cross-cultural collaboration uh, because yeah you're right there is a lot of work to do yeah, that might be a good arena for collaborative work. And because, let's be honest, Ottoman studies and Middle East studies have been pretty resistant to talking about anti-blackness and forms of racism in the history because, you know, for various reasons, I think bringing in that more global perspective, bringing in Elizabethan England and, and looking at them side by side, a place where clearly there was an image of the quote-unquote Turk could be uh, a fruitful avenue and I wanted to, you know, on that note, sort of think about another area of comparison because you've been teaching in uh, post 9-11 America and your work on Shakespeare is in conversation with the, the moment of like the war on terror and everything that has come with it, where in many ways there's, there's, there's a lot of parallels, right? There's this, the idea of the Muslim threat some of the Orientalist tropes that go back to the 16th century resurfaced in the pop culture as, you know, there was more fascination and fear surrounding the Islamic world. So in your classes, what are you doing with students to help them make the connections between that very formative time period in English culture, Anglophone culture, and sort of this moment that we've been in? <laughs> Thank you for the huge question. Uh, I think it's so hard to really talk about the the ways that we have as a society internalized so many of the logics of the war on terror, right? Something that's going on 20 years now. And um, my students were either not born or babies uh, when 9-11 happened. And so they have no living memory of that event. 
um, and their experience of the war on terror has just been that this is an ongoing like it's it's been a conflict for their whole lives the challenge for me is to really kind of expose how we make difference through these texts so so that we can have the the enemy that we need to do the thing that we want to do um, and so it really helps for me to to have literature as my field because we analyze text, right? We analyze discourse and we get to see how these things work. So Shakespeare is always easy and convenient to go to and Othello too um, is the only play I think that is explicitly seems to be engaged with the threat of the Islamic East for example, to use all of the problematic language. Certainly, there are several other playwrights. And so if I was doing a course that would that's on the Mediterranean, I would go to plays like The Renegado. Uh, I would go to The Jew of Malta by Christopher Marlowe, The Fair Maid of the West, several of these that kind of keep rehearsing the danger that Europeans face or, or Englishmen face. It's very rare that in the plays the characters will be English. They're usually Italian or Spanish or something. But the danger of the Mediterranean is the danger of cultural annihilation, where you the threat of being turned into a Turk is very real, and therefore you will um, betray everything that your culture stands for. And then we see the same kind of rhetoric mobilized in the war on terror, where the radical Islamic fundamentalists, and again, I use air quotes for this, are trying to take over and destroy our way of life and turn us into them. And, you know, women will have to wear burqas and will be veiled and not have any of their freedoms. I mean, that's like Laura Bush in 2001 talking about these things. So there are really a lot of discursive parallels and that just helps students, I think, understand how this conflict is not a historical conflict, but that we can always pick up this language, right? So it's not as though, it's not a clash of civilizations. It's just that we have this language that we can access to turn it into something that is um, destined to happen. There's one other thing I thought of. Fairly early on in your teaching career, you taught at Boazici University. What was it like doing this in Turkey where all of these assumptions and categories and, and um, background are completely different? Or maybe not, but what was it like? It was one of the best experiences of my life uh, teaching at Boazici and just living in Turkey, um, having the experience of looking at this place, this geography that I had been studying uh, more uh, now as an insider rather than an outsider and just kind of reorienting myself so that I was looking um, not at East and West in the same way anymore, right? Like if we've all been to Istanbul and we hear it all the time, or we used to hear it all the time, I don't know if they, people still say it, but right, the only city, city in the world that's in Europe and Asia, right? And so... Um, I think that really the the internalization of that belief that many 
Turks have, or at least the students that I had, was really um, a way for me to be able to access both their feelings about being Turkish and about kind of being European. Um, so that they had, I think, a, a view, a, a global view that was obviously very different from the kind of view that we have in North America, where which wasn't necessarily colonizing in the same way. Did you have any experiences with the, the Shakespeare text, though, dealing with this image of of the Turk with students and then having them in this moment where Turkey's very place in Europe is like one of the central political questions of the day? Unfortunately, I didn't because we the Shakespeare text that we did end up reading was Macbeth and, and not Othello, so I didn't get to choose. But what was really interesting, of course, when you teach Macbeth, for example, is that gender is so important because there's a way of just reading that play where you can blame everything on women, right? Lady Macbeth and the witches. And so uh, having those conversations, that was, that was really interesting. And I felt like my students were, I think, empowered to be honest in their reactions to like, yeah, of course it was her fault. Like it says so right here, right? There's no other way of reading it. And so, so having, and then having a woman instructor kind of challenging them, not to say that like there were several women instructors there and there were several people there at that time who were very anti allowing students to wear their headscarves to class. So it was a, it was a strange moment. But I will say that teaching at Boazici and seeing the the fortress that you can see on um, that that Mehmet built to to like cut the throat of the of the um, Boaz the Bosphorus and um, conquer the city. Uh, some someone told me that they had seen a performance of Othello in the fortress before it became too dangerous to have performances there. And she was like, it was just so fantastic to see it in this place. And I, I found it very interesting because it was that same impulse of um, like Arab people wanting to claim Othello for their own, right? Like you're the enemy in this play. Like Turkey is not the, you know, the Ottomans are not the good guys here, but somehow Shakespeare has, and having ownership of that or seeing yourself in Shakespeare, even as a villain, gives you some kind of like boost <laughs> if i could chime in maybe to chris's question as a as a turk as a turkish person who went to american schools reading shakespeare in high school being very confused about all these references to turks and never really understanding them um you know we didn't really talk about it in class um so it wasn't until i got sort of later in university started researching it's like aha okay now i get it and people, and I think teachers really gloss it over because we don't know, especially like if we're reading it in high school or um, even even as an undergraduate, there it's an uncomfortable moment of bigotry and xenophobia, right? So it's along the same lines as the really problematic references to Jews. These are all words that you swear by, but these are people's identities. And bringing that up in high school then or early college will make your students question how great Shakespeare is if he's using using these markers of ethnicity as a slur. Yeah, I remember reading The Merchant of Venice in high school and a lot of students coming away with the lesson that you wouldn't want them to come away with based on the portrayal of Jews in the, the play. So it, yeah, I can imagine it's very challenging work to do this critique with people, but it's important work, right? Because it's it's excavating 
the accretion sort of of different kinds of prejudice and racism and othering and even the way we other itself is kind of a trope that has to be like uh, deconstructed. Like how do you construct someone as inferior or other identifying that as like part of the process of, of going beyond it. So Shakespeare for that, for that uh, reason and for so many others seems very rich um, and still very relevant. All these centuries later, all these books later can always find something new. (laughs) You know, just the thing about Merchant um, study, they, they've done like audience studies where um, even the most kind of socially just performance of that show where you have a lot of intervention, maybe you're changing things, all of that, audience members still come away feeling anti-Semitic because that's what this play encourages. So it's just... Um, it's just one of those plays that you can't, and here I'm citing Ayanna Thompson um, in her um, episode of Code Switch, where she says that maybe we should kind of retire performances of certain plays, which doesn't mean we're canceling them, right? But they're not really serving, they're not serving the communities that are being represented, right? They're serving white supremacy. Well... Hopefully in this interview, we've done our part to do the opposite and, you know, learn something about a totally new perspective on a very familiar topic, at least in American culture. Uh, thanks for talking to us, Ambreen. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you. That concludes our conversation with Ambreen Dadaboy. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic, we've got a select bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, as well as a lot of other great episodes about the Ottoman Empire and the early modern world. I'm Chris Grayton. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.